uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses will uh, ask you oftentimes. And the reason they're going to do this, they're going to try to do, uh, they're going to try to get you to doubt your faith. There's two ways that the majority of people become Jehovah's Witnesses. One of them is they're born into it. The other one is they look for, and they're actually trained to do this. They look for, and they are trained what questions to ask to find people that are weak in their Bibles. They don't know their doctrine according to Scripture. And uh, they, they, they pick that apart. And if you don't understand, you don't know your doctrine, if you can't give a defense of it from the Bible, uh, we don't believe what we believe because pastor got up one Sunday and preached a message on it. That is not our doctrine. Uh, we don't believe what we believe simply because that's what mom and dad taught us all these years or that's what all the churches we've ever belonged to have held to. We hold to doctrine because the Bible says it. And that is the most crucial time. And I know I, I beat this horse as hard as I can and, and seem to always be harping on this, but folks, we're living in a day where there are many, many people that are getting out of church, they're going into error <coughs> because they're being questioned by people uh, about things that the Bible has answers for. We just don't know how to answer them. And so it's very important that we study Scripture, we know Scripture, that we are... Um, I, I like the idea, and I love to use the word, that we ought to saturate our lives with Scripture. Scripture. We ought to read it, we ought to hear it, we ought to listen to it, we ought to listen to preaching, we ought to hear the Bible read. Uh, Romans uh, tells us that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And uh, there ought to be memorizing, there ought to be meditating on it. And uh, we ought to saturate our lives uh, around the Word of God and to do all that we can to be able to give a strong defense of our uh, doctrine. Uh, and I don't even like to call it defense. I think we ought to be proclaiming the truth of our doctrine. Uh, I don't think we ought to stand back uh, statically and wait for people to come and attack it. Uh, I think we ought to be going into this world and teaching the truth of God's Word and uh, be proactive about it. Uh, if you see... Jehovah's Witnesses, with what's becoming more popular now among them, uh, their magazine racks and stands uh, that they'll oftentimes set up on a corner, and there'll be a couple of them sitting there in chairs or, or standing there next to the, the racks. And uh, oftentimes it'll say free Bible or free uh, Bible study. Um, and don't be afraid. Once you've studied and you've uh, worked on some of these things, don't be afraid to go up and talk with them. Uh, they're sitting there waiting for people to come and talk to them about the Lord. Uh, if they come to your house, they're wanting to talk to you about Jesus Christ. Now, they're wrong, so you better be strong in your doctrine. Uh, but that's a prime, prime opportunity that we have missed for so many years of people. I don't know how many times I've tried to talk to people and they say, not interested. You talk to a Jehovah's Witness and say, I want to talk to you about Jesus, they're going to jump at it. They're going to come in and say, hey, we'll come in your house, sit down, and talk with you as long as you want to. Uh, and so a prime opportunity. So we've talked about this, and uh, we started dealing with some things last week that they're going to be um, asking you. Their key thing, and the whole, the whole kind of focal point of uh, their belief system, and I, I don't want to call it a religion because they're, they're really not, I mean, they are kind of a religion, but they're not really a religion. They're a publishing company. If you look at it from, they, they don't have churches, uh, they have meeting halls, they have these, these like a, it's like a social club uh, type of a structure. 
And uh, so I, I hate to even call them a church or a religion um, because they're really not that. They're, they're actually, uh, at their root, they're a publishing company. And uh, they, got, they want to get their uh, magazines out uh, to everybody that they can. And the, the key issue, the key issue with Jehovah's Witnesses that they're going to try to start with and that they're going to try to get us to, to doubt is that Jesus is God. Uh, they're going to say that Jesus is a created being. He's no different than, uh, in fact, they, they teach that he was Michael the archangel before he was born physically into this earth. And uh, that he was created by God. Um, they do not believe he's God. And they will use terminology. And you've got to know this. They will use terminology that we use sometimes, but they mean something different by it. And they're going to trap you on some things. They're going to uh, ask some questions. And one of the big questions they're going, to, they're going to ask you, and one of the probably one of the more popular questions that they lead with is, uh, where in the Scripture does it say that Jesus is the same as Jehovah? Now, they're big on the name Jehovah. Um, because our King James Bible only has it in there a few times, but that, and they, they refer to that as God's name, and that our Bible is inferior to theirs because their Bible uses Jehovah quite, quite a bit more in theirs. And they say, well, that's why it's more accurate, but it's not more accurate. They just put Jehovah in a lot more times. Um, and so they're going to try to get you to doubt that Jesus is God. And they're going to ask you this question. So you need to have some Scripture. We gave you some last week. We spent a good deal of time on it. So I'm not going to reteach, reteach that particular lesson. But I gave you a number of verses of Scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 34 to 37. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And I'm just going through these quickly because uh, I was told last week our recording didn't do very well. So I want to make sure the information is available. Uh, John chapter 20 and verse number 28. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 36. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. And then there's two passages that go together. Uh, one of them uh, uses, um, Old Testament uses capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, uh, whenever it's referring to God uh, Himself. And then in the New Testament, uh, and, and we see that in Isaiah chapter 40, in verse number 3, then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter number 2, verses 10, all the way through chapter 3 and verse number 3, we find that the reference to God in Isaiah is speaking also in Matthew chapter number 2 and 10 through Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 3 of Jesus. So they are the same. They're speaking of the same being, uh, speaking of the same God. Uh, we don't have, and they're going to they're going to throw this out. They're going to say, "Well, you're polytheistic, then. You're you believe in multiple gods? No, we believe in one God that is expressed in three persons." And you say, "Oh, that's that's a mind-boggling thing." And we spent a little bit of time last week trying to help you with some of the issues, and uh, we're going to look a little bit more about some answers you can give them regarding God being three and yet being one. And we'll look at that a little bit uh, here in just a moment. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 8 is another passage. And then another pair of passages, again, uh, Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 24, and then Hebrews 1.10. Those two kind of go together. And you, you establish that Isaiah is speaking about God in Isaiah, 
And then you go to the New Testament, and the exact same thing is referring to, uh, in, this, in this case, Jesus. So since they're both dealing with the same issue, uh, it shows that they are one. They're, they're the same. Uh, God and Jesus are God. Um, all right? So then they were going to ask you this question. Where in Scripture does it say that God is a trinity? We, we left you with this last week and gave just a few words of introduction. Uh, where does it say that God is a trinity? If you go and try to find the trinity, you look up trinity in a concordance, you're not going to find that word in Scripture. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the doctrine of the trinity is not taught in Scripture. You just don't find that word. Uh, but so, uh, again, I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture tonight. You can write these down, but keep your Bibles handy. And let's turn to them. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 28. Probably one of the easiest ones to remember because a lot of people already know this verse. And it's going to be important uh, that you understand what is being said here. In Matthew chapter 28, verse number 19, Jesus is giving what we call the Great Commission. And He says in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name... Very important. If you're going to use the Bible that you're having in your lap right now to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses, I would encourage you to underline the word name. Okay? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Okay? Now, they're going to say, see there, that's talking about three different people. No, no, wait a minute. The name, the word name, is what? Plural or singular? Singular. Singular. Speaking of one person. In the name of the Father, is God the Father? Yes. Is God Jesus? Yes. Is God the Holy Spirit? Yes. All three. All right? So again, they're going to try to use that passage to refute the Trinity. And the truth is, it really supports it and helps us to see that. All right? Uh, Probably one of the most clearly stated ones is John chapter number 10. (coughs) Excuse me. John chapter number 10, verse number, uh, let's start verse number 25. <clears throat> Jesus is, is speaking here and he says, uh, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now that's, that's a, a, again, showing the unity of God the Son and God the Father. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. The same thing being said about the Son and the Father. Alright? And then I want you to notice verse number 30. I and my Father are one. All right. Genesis chapter 1, if you will. Genesis chapter number 1. From the very beginning of our Scripture, the concept of a multi-person, singular God is established. And we find in Genesis chapter number 1, in verse number 26, the Bible says, And God said, Let 
us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And you say, well, then it's speaking there of multiple gods. All right, now look in verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. Well, wait a minute. Verse number 26, he said, let us make man in our image. All right? So again, we have uh, the, the concept, the doctrine of the Trinity taught in Scripture. And uh, that's going to be probably one of the hardest doctrines that people will ask you about, and, and it may not even be a Jehovah's Witness, that they'll ask you about and say, where in the Bible does it talk about the Trinity? Well, you ought to have some Scripture for it. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is an easy one because a lot of people know that one by heart. Genesis 1.26 is a very easy one. 1.26, 1.27. Again, very easy. It's the very beginning of your Bible. It's hard, not hard to remember where that is. Um, and if you can only think of those two, that ought to be enough to get you through. And then panic and go home and find your Bible and find the rest of the passages, all right? But at least be able to have some that you can answer, all right? Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 13. Second Corinthians chapter 13. And again, these are not in-depth teachings on these individual doctrines. I'm just trying to give you some ammunition and some, some Scripture uh, that we get our doctrine from so that they, when they question you and they try to, uh, try to get you to doubt your doctrine, you can go back and you don't have to say, well, that's what my pastor said. <laughs> that's not going to float. Trust me, I know your pastor. That's not going to float. Uh, you've got to have some Scripture. All right? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Here again we see all three of them listed. And I would use this more as a supporting verse. It doesn't specifically say that they're one. It just refers to all three of them, though. All right? So that is a great supporting verse. I wouldn't lead with that one, perhaps, but probably would be a great one to use to, to back up and to support the other verses of Scripture. All right? Deuteronomy chapter number 6. Deuteronomy chapter number 6. <clears throat> And this is what we use to defend the fact that we are not polytheists. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses will use this verse oftentimes to say, see, there is no other God other than God. And so that means Jesus can't be God and the Holy Spirit can't be God. That's what they're going to say from this verse. But it's very important that we understand this is not three gods that we believe in. It's one God. And notice he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, capital O-R-D, again, speaking of God's name here, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. Okay? So using that verse in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen would be a very good way to, again, combine some passages to support it. 
Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter number 1. And uh, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds. Now, <clears throat> we spoke a little bit last week, and we brought some passages to light, and we even used, I believe, this passage, or yes, we did bring this passage into bear, bear uh, because in the Old Testament there's reference to the fact that God is the one who did the creating, and yet here in Hebrews it says that Jesus is the one that did creating, and then yet in another passage it says that the Holy Spirit had a part in the creation of the world. And so again, all three of them, uh, and when it says that God alone created the, everything that is, then that means Jesus is God, and that means the Holy Spirit is God. They're all co-equal in uh, one, one God. All right, so again, you can use... Um, this passage. In verse number 3, "...who being in the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, uh, as He hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." Now, we're going to uh, need this verse here in just a little bit uh, when we go back to uh, another question that they're going to ask you. So keep this in mind, um, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse number uh, 4 and verse number 5. We'll look at those, uh, Lord willing, when we get to this uh, section, if we get that far tonight. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. And I will say this, that, that is something that will help a lot because a lot of these verses will cross over into another question that somebody will ask. Um, and so, a lot of times it answers two or three of their questions. Matthew chapter 3, verse number uh, 16. And Jesus, when He was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto Him. And He saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove, and lighting upon Him, and lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, we see all three persons... Uh, of the Godhead here. Okay, so we have the Son, we have the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon Him, and then we have the voice from heaven. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And this one is a great one to use when they say, well, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is Jehovah or God? Uh, this is another good one. And also uh, is helpful with the issues of the Trinity. Beware lest any man... Uh, verse number 8. I'm sorry. Colossians 2, verse number 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him, speaking of Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That means God the Father is part of Jesus, God the Holy Spirit is part of Jesus, and vice versa. They're all God. 
Okay, Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter number 9, verse number 6. And by the way, these first two are going to be the longest ones. The others that I give you, I'm just going to give you a few verses on, and then you can build on it. I'll give you a framework and a skeleton. You can add the meat to it. All right? Isaiah chapter number 9 and verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ, we spoke of this last week. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Speaking here of Jesus, the Mighty God, the Everlasting what? Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So Jesus uh, is going to have a kingdom that has no end. Luke chapter 3, verse number 21. In a very similar passage to Matthew's account. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a, notice this, bodily shape like a dove upon him. They're going to say also, and this is a great text, and so is Matthew, that the Holy Spirit is the essence of God, that He does not have form. He cannot be seen. He's a spirit. Uh, and yet here it says that He had a bodily shape like a, like a dove upon Him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. Okay, Brother Jim, this one's for you. All right, First John chapter 5. And we've been a little while getting to this one. But Jim mentioned this one going out of church last Wednesday. I said, we're going to get there. We're not there yet, though. But here we are. First John 5. And verse number... Uh, let's, let's, I'm going to read from the beginning, but we're going to end up in verse number 7. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth Him that begat loveth Him also that is begotten of Him. Now, don't get tripped up with the idea of begat and begotten here because we're not speaking of the fact that Jesus was created here. Uh, we're speaking of the fact of His relationship to His Father. Okay, So even though He is God, there is a relationship that's there between the two persons, those two persons of the Godhead. And so don't get, don't get tripped up on this begotten. They're going to use that sometimes to try to say, well, then that shows that Jesus was not in existence before He was born. They're going to say that He was Michael the archangel, and then when He was born, He became Jesus. That's when Jesus was begotten or created by God. And that's what they'll hold to. So be careful on this idea of begotten. Make sure you understand that when it speaks of uh, Jesus being begotten by God, that it is speaking of relationship, not the fact that He was created by God. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. And boy, that's a great statement, isn't it? For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. 
This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, watch this, the Father, the Word, capital W, which we found in John 1, referencing Jesus, and the Holy Ghost. And then I want you to notice this phrase, and these three are one. You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will find the Trinity in the Bible. Don't be confused by that statement, all right? You won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you will find the Trinity in the Bible. John chapter 14, the Gospel of John this time. John chapter 14, and let's look in verse number 16. We'll start in verse 15. Jesus is speaking here. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. So again, we see the three of them listed here. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. Again, they're going to try to pick that verse apart. They're going to say, well, how can Jesus pray to God the Father if they're all the same? Understand that when Jesus prays to the Father, He's doing that as an example for you and I. The relationship of Father and Son is something that is set as an example for what our relationship, once we're redeemed, is going to be with the Father. That we can pray and have that access to Him. All right? So another question they're going to ask, uh, so that's, that's where they ask you about the Trinity. There's other verses you can find throughout Scripture. Uh, that'll get you started and give you some, some, a good springboard to get started on. Um, some other questions they may ask you is, is something along this line. Uh, they may ask you, doesn't Matthew 28, and we mentioned that a minute ago, prove that Jehovah and Jesus are totally separate beings since it lists them separately? Again, know that name. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, he is singular, so it's speaking of one person there, even though it's, or one God, even though it's speaking of three uh, persons there. And then use the passages that we just did, First John five seven, where it speaks of the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And I would use those in conjunction with each other. Take them to Matthew twenty eight. Let them read that passage, and then take them to First John chapter five and verse seven, and that that solidifies your claim that name is singular, that's dealing with one, all right? So, again, that's a great uh, answer to that one. Another question they may ask is this. Since Jesus died, and you're teaching that Jesus is God, then aren't you saying that God died? So if that's the case, then who resurrected Him? Did a dead person resurrect himself? And so they're going to ask this they're going to phrase these questions this way. If, if Jesus is God and He died, then didn't God die? No. For one thing, God is infinite. And they think that death is a, a cessation of life if you're not saved. And they believe that Jesus, being a created being, ceased to exist, that He rose in a spirit form and became Michael the archangel once again when he ascended uh, back to heaven. They believe that the body of Jesus uh, was dissolved in the grave, that it corrupted in the grave. There's a number of passages that talks about this, and we're going to look at some of those very quickly. Let's start with John chapter number 2. John chapter number 2. And uh, we're going to start in verse number 13. I think this is one of the great passages that deal with this subject. Who raised Jesus from the dead? 
Was it God the Father? Was it God the Son? Was it God the Holy Spirit? Yes. <laughs> That's the answer. Okay? All of the above. All right, let's look in chapter 2 here of John. And uh, Jesus is um, speaking about uh, His body, his, his crucifixion. All right? They don't quite understand it because He's speaking um, with, some, with, an, with a, a symbolism here. In verse number 13... Um, Let's start in verse number 11. Uh, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. After this, He went down to Capernaum, He and His mother and His brethren and His disciples, disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when He had made a scourge of small cords... He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So this is the setting that Jesus is speaking of here. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? This is one of the first times Jesus starts to claim that He is the Son of God. He refers to this temple as His house. And so they're saying, okay, what, what sign do you have that you are who you say you are? Jesus answered and said unto them, now I want you to notice this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? So they're thinking he's talking about the actual physical building that was known as the temple. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his what? Body. So we know that when he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, that he was speaking of him dying and raising his own body. Now notice what it says in verse 19. The actual words of Jesus, destroy this temple, and in three days, there's a single letter word here, I will raise it up. So yes. You say, how could Jesus raise himself from the dead? Because he wasn't dead. His body was physical body had shed the blood and had deceased, but Jesus himself was not dead. He would, he didn't just cease to exist. He was in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. By the way, any more than when you and I die, that we're really dead. We have a soul that goes on and lives forever, and it's going to live forever somewhere. By the way, every person has a soul that's going to live forever. There's some teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses that say there's going to be some that are the 144,000 chosen ones that uh, are, the, are the top-notch ones. They get to be in heaven with Jesus in His presence. The rest of them that were just so-so, uh, did the best they could, are going to be on a paradise earth. And those who rejected the, the Jehovah's Witness faith, they're just going to die and cease to exist. That's what they'll teach. But the Bible teaches us that there is a soul of man that never dies. It's going to spend an eternity somewhere. 
And it's either going to be in heaven or in hell. There's only two choices, two options. Alright, so again, John chapter 2 is a great passage to say, well, does that mean he's going to raise himself up? Yes. That's what the Bible says. Alright, but let's look in Romans chapter number 6. And again, this this helps support the issue of the Trinity. Alright, Romans chapter 6. Again, a very familiar chapter. A lot of people have memorized verses from this, or at least the first part of it. We'll begin in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, Paul's writing this to the Christians in Rome. He's writing it in response to the fact that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But that truth, which is a great truth, was causing them to say, well, if my sin abounds, it causes grace to abound more. Then does that mean I should sin so that grace can abound more? And so that's what he's answering here in verse number 1. That's why he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he answers it with, God forbid. How, by the way, those, of, those people who say, well, I've been forgiven by God. It's all under the blood. I can now go out here and live how I want to live. That is not the teaching of Scripture. You can do that. But that's not what God desires. Uh, He does say, God forbid, we should not live in sin. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Okay, so it's referring here to Christ and His physical body and His death. Now look in verse number 4. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the what? Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So who raised Him up? Jesus or the Father? The best answer is yes. They're both God. They're both God. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse number 22. Peter is speaking here. He's, he's preaching. He's giving defense of uh, the gospel. In verse number 22, he says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, <clears throat> a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, So they're speaking here of the fact that these men were already convinced, even though they were rejecting Christ, because of the the miracles, the wonders, the signs, they knew that He was God. They knew that. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. By the way, make sure you understand this. Jesus didn't have His life taken from Him. It was something that was part of God's plan. Because not only does it say him being delivered by the determined counsel, and notice this foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now, this passage is a great passage. I'm going to read a little bit further, because it also will help with the issue that they teach that when Jesus died and went into the tomb, his body never came out, that it just dissolved. All right? So let's look at, we're going to look at a couple passages on that real quick. Let's continue reading. For David speaketh concerning him, 
I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for He is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad forevermore. Also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. All right, now he's not talking here of sinful corruption. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see what type of corruption he's speaking of here. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Verse number 50, the Apostle Paul writes this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, notice this word, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So this idea of the corruption is dealing of the physical deterioration of the body. This corruptible body is going to have to put on incorruptible body. We're going to have a glorified body. It's going to be an immortal body. And that's why he said in verse number 5 that this is referring to the death. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Alright? So again, you've got some things you can use there about, well, if you say that Jesus is God and Jesus died, they're they're big on logic. They, They hold their doctrine because... It makes logical sense, not because it's what the truth of Scripture says. Now, they'll claim to say that we believe the Scriptures. But they'll say, if, if Jesus is God, which is what you're, you're saying, if Jesus is God and Jesus died, then doesn't that mean that God died too? In other words, they both ceased to exist. And then who's around to raise them? But they don't, they don't follow the eternality of the soul the eternality of God Himself. And while the bodily form of Jesus was put on a cross and hung to death, uh, uh, crucified to death, Jesus Himself was still, still in existence. He didn't cease to exist. Alright? So we need to be able to give an account of that. Um, let's do one more. I'll, I'll just get started on it and let you work on it this week and maybe a little bit if you'd like to. So another question they'll ask you is this. They they don't hold to the fact that there's a cross, that Jesus was crucified on a cross. They will call it a torture stake. Now, this is something that has changed in the Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine. Um, I think it was in 1923. I'm going to have to check and make sure. It's either in 23 or 24, somewhere in that range. They had their emblem, which was a slanted cross with a crown around it. And all of a sudden, one month, they changed it to a stake, which is what they now have on their brochure as their emblem. It's a, it's a stake, a single stake without a crossbar on it. 
uh, and a crown around it. And not a huge thing, but they're going to use this to try to say, well, your Bible is wrong on that. They're going to say he wasn't crucified on the cross. He was crucified on a torture stake. And they're going to go back and say, we've got the Greek word. And they will pull a small, out-of-context definition from a Greek lexicon. In fact, I, I could give you the actual lexicon they pulled it from. And they won't give you the entire paragraph because the entire paragraph actually lends itself that the more accustomed and more appropriate method was not a torture stake, but was, in in fact, a cross. And it actually supports the issue of the cross. But they're going to pull one little phrase out of that, and they're going to say, see, we've got the Greek to say this, and it gives them another ammunition to challenge and charge your Bible that you hold to and say, ha-ha, your Bible is not accurate when it talks about a cross. Now, there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about regarding the cross. Let's look in Mark chapter 15. And I'm just going to give you a couple of these just to kind of wet your whistle this week, and then we'll, we'll pick up here next week and delve into it a little further. Mark chapter number 15. And uh, let's go to verse number 30. Mark chapter 15 and verse number 30. Uh, oh, I got the wrong... Turn to the wrong page here. Sorry about that. Give me just a moment. Mark chapter 15, verse 30. It's like, well, that's not the right verse. But it is. All right. Yep. So, again, he's uh, being, he's already on the cross, and uh, they're ridiculing him and talking about him. And one of the ridicules that was thrown at him is, Save thyself and come down from thy cross. Now, that's all you and I need, isn't it? Because we believe that this is an inspired, inerrant, perfectly preserved, word-for-word, Word of God. And if it says cross, then it means cross. But you've got to understand this. While that is sufficient for us, it is not for the Jehovah's Witness. So we need to make sure that we can give a defense of this. Um, we can certainly use the translation of Scripture and point to the fact of not only the care that was taken to translate our Scriptures and you can go into the biblical lines and you, if you know your... We teach on this about once a year or every 18 months or so how we got our King James Bible. Why we believe it to be inerrant, inspired, and absolutely perfectly preserved in the English language in our King James Bible. You can go through that history and that line and you can give a strong defense and say that that is the best word that, uh, when the English translators did it, that is the word that best fit the translation. And not only that, it's the one that we believe God supernaturally helped the translators in coming up with and saying that this is what it is. There's a couple of evidences, one of them being, and I'll just kind of wet your whistle on this, we'll look at it next week, that there was a sign hung above Jesus' head. You remember that? Well, on the torture stake, what they would do is take the hands and put them above the head, and there would be a difficult way of trying to put a sign above his head. So that would be one way of giving some evidence that it was a cross. Uh, One of the other things is you can use some archaeological uh, evidence, and some of the earliest uh, Christian symbols 
which come from the first century, from the time around the Apostle Paul's time and a little bit shortly after. And maybe you've seen some of these. Uh, are a cross, but at the top of it, it has a circle on the top, kind of an, uh, an egg shape or a circular shape on the top of it. Um, in fact, a lot of them had the, the, the circle on top kind of offset to one side. And the reason for that was they were depicting Jesus who died on the cross and had slumped his head. And this is a drawing that first century Christians would use to identify with each other during times of persecution, that I'm one who believes in the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are people who were closer in history to them than we are. We understand that those in the first century would have been much closer to the historical events of of that crucifixion than we are, Uh, just because there's been more years past. Hope you got that, okay, (laughs) since the crucifixion for us. And if you look at anything of history, um, I can remember the space shuttle Challenger blowing up. I remember standing in our window at the at the school, and we watched it from the window go up. And they were about 40 minutes away from us. We could see the shuttle launch from our school. And I remember seeing that. I remember watching it as it exploded. There are some vivid details about that account that I can remember much better than my kids can reading it from a history book. The reason being is I was there. I had an eyewitness account of it. I was closer to it. It was fresher in my memory. And when you're a young person, a teenager, and you see something like that, it ingrains itself in your mind. My kids, all they can do is look at some pictures, read it on um, the history books, maybe watch a YouTube video about it. But because they're further removed, they don't have as accurate of a depiction of it. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, we believe that it was a stake now, uh, and we think that, that our Bible is more accurate because they get this little phrase out of a Greek lexicon, we can rest assured that the Bible got it right. Uh, and we need to hold to that. Uh, it's not at all a problem for you and I to explain to them that we believe this King James book to be the inerrant, preserved Every word of it, infallible word of God. I would be will. I'd be ready to give a defense of that. Why we hold to that, and you need to know why we hold to those things. All right. Um, they'll give you a lot more verses next week. We'll bring in some more material for you. Again, if you're not getting all these verses down, I know we're going through a lot of scripture. Um, when we get to the end of this study here in about two or three weeks, uh, I'll take all of these notes and we'll put them together in a little. Um, little pamphlet or something that we can staple and hand out to you and, um, and give them to you. You can also go uh, online, and hopefully we've got a better recording tonight, and uh, listen to them online again if you need to go back and listen to them again. But, folks, before we can, before we can start working on the Jehovah's Witnesses and, and showing them the doctrine, er, doctrinal errors of their, uh, their scriptures, we need to make sure that we are well-grounded. Because I'll tell you this, they go to colleges, they have meetings throughout the week, they usually meet every other day or every two days where they come together and they teach these doctrines over and over and over and they drill them home. And then when they go out and do mission work, they actually go to training and they have to go through thorough training to know these doctrines. 
and they have to be able to. And they, they I've watched a few uh, videos that have been. They're they're protective of them, but some people have gotten a hold of some and have published them. And I've watched some of their videos of their training videos, and they are very very shrewd, very deceitful, very cunning at picking apart other people's doctrines. Folks, make sure that we know our doctrine, that we have a firm foundation to stand on with it. Okay? And I would, I would say that, I, I, I would say that no matter what, but especially with the Jehovah's Witnesses, because that's going to be their, their inroad to your heart. And they're going to try to get you to doubt Scripture. All right? Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Appreciate your patience these last couple weeks, but in a study like this, there's just a lot of information to try to get out, and I try to be conscious of the time. So thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful once again for your word, how it guides and directs our steps. And, Lord, we don't have to sit here and uh, try to hold to doctrine or believe things that are simply uh, somebody's opinion or somebody's idea.